Today, uh, our sermon topic is perseverance. And it's not something I created. It happened that in our study in the book of Hebrews, we have uh, an opportunity to see a moment that is really a transition moment in our study where the author of the book of Hebrews has spent 10 chapters defining and clarifying as best he could why Jesus is who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And now we're going to transition into a season where he's going to say, in light of all of this, let's persevere. In verse 36 of today's text, the final verse of our reading today, the writer of Hebrews says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I want to pray for us this morning as we read from the Scriptures. Father, would you bless our time in studying your word briefly this morning, that we'd be people who would endure, we'd be people who would persevere for the same reasons that, that my brother uh, would persevere in honoring his friend and at the same time honoring you. Jesus, would we today capture in our hearts and minds the grace that you've offered in the gospel and also uh, that would fuel us to, to honor you even more so in all that we say and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good news this past week. As a church, we had been praying for, as millions of people around the world have been praying for, Miriam Ibrahim, the Sudanese woman spared uh, execution for her faith. Uh, this past week, uh, she came very close to being executed by hanging after being sentenced to death for converting to Christianity from Islam. She arrived in New Hampshire Thursday night to begin a new life with her husband and children. Ibrahim was sentenced to death after being uh, accused of apostasy. She was charged with adultery after marrying Daniel Wani, a Christian Sudanese man who had been an American citizen since 2005. Under Sharia law, Muslim women are not permitted to marry Christian men. As Ibrahim's father is a Muslim, she was not allowed to convert to Christianity under Sudan's version of Islamic law. Her father left the family when she was young, so Ibrahim maintains she is a Christian and was raised by her Christian mother. It's exciting to see the Lord answer prayer. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking about the experience, the modern-day experience of Miriam Ibrahim and, and that being what went on in the book of Hebrews. All of the dynamics associated with her dilemma, uh, family saying, we are going to cut you off, culture, the culture she was in saying, you are an apostate, all of these things conspired, and then on top of that, the threat of death. And in today's passage, you heard the writer of Hebrews say, some of you were persecuted to the point where your physical beings were threatened. This is what was going on, and this isn't yesteryear. This is today. This is the experience of this woman in the Sudan, and now, by God's grace, she's been given the opportunity to grow in Christ in a country that's free. This is her new challenge. It's the challenge you and I face, which is growing in this sense of comfort that everything in our lives goes the way we want it to go, and when it doesn't go the way we want it to go, we now complain about it. 
And perhaps there have been other areas of your life where you've sensed, uh, while your life hasn't been threatened, you've sensed you've needed to persevere. You can't get the job you want to get. Finances are tight. You, you perhaps have gone through a heartbreak of some kind. Maybe you're struggling with a physical ailment. Perhaps you uh, have an addiction or a struggle with sin that just seemingly won't go away. And there are days where you think to yourself, I just want to quit. I, I, I just I cannot take this any longer. I can't endure. This passage gives us and some insight. Today's passage in Hebrews 10 gives us some insight as to how believers endure. But before I can get to the how of our perseverance, how we persevere in the faith, uh, in the faith I must... Uh, uh, identify the elephant in the room. Uh, verses 26 through 27 of Hebrews chapter 10 have been used by some who call themselves Christians to say uh, and, and to perceive or to believe that a person could be a Christian and then all of a sudden become not a Christian. In other words, that you could lose your salvation or you could be a believing person, a genuine believer and then through some series of events, your bad choices or difficulties, all of a sudden lose your salvation. Or you would come to a place in your life where you would deny Christ and, and you were once genuinely a believer and now you are not. And, and so this verse says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Interestingly, if you were going to contend that this passage, and there's a couple of the verses that follow it in Hebrews 10, was saying that a person could be a Christian, genuinely a believer, and then become unchristian, it would effectively eliminate and actually contradict everything that was said in the previous 10 chapters, let alone the verses that precede this in Hebrews chapter 10. To contend that a person can lose their salvation is a contradiction of what we know to be true in other scriptures. And if you go back just two or three sermons ago, we talked about a passage in Hebrews where we have seen over and again that when somebody is a believer, what happens is they become a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. They become transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The, uh, the caterpillar has changed into a butterfly. There's no going back. What this passage is speaking of when it says receiving a knowledge of the truth and then no sacrifice for sins being left is there are people, there perhaps are people here who would in their minds understand what the gospel is offering and perhaps socially adapt themselves and identify as children of God in a Christian context, but deep down inside, their heart has never been transformed. If you grew up or you came to Christ or you lived for two decades, as did I, and in the American Bible Belt South, I can tell you everybody is a Christian. Only in Southern California are people willing to go, no way, are you dumb? I mean, in the South, even if you don't believe, you say you're a Christian because there's cultural pressure, at least where I was from, that, you know, you went to church on Sundays. Of course you identified with Christianity. 
So it isn't hard for people who have lived in that context to understand. Not to mention the fact that we've all had, if you've been in church for any length of time, people that you saw come to church, maybe even make some kind of public profession of faith, and then kind of change their mind at some point and say, you know, this really isn't my thing. What we know, and we can actually refer back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7, is that some people will do the work of God and not know God. Some people will be doing the things that look like Christian things to do. And Jesus even says, I never knew you. Let's read real quick from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. This is the words of our Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's important to note that Jesus says that the, the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven... Now, if the works of righteousness aren't the will of the Father, what is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is that you know Him. The will of the Father, the reason for the gospel, is to restore us to relationship with God. So it is possible that a person goes through their whole life and Christianity is like a meal ticket. It's like a pass. You know, I'm going to get into this park for free. That's the abstract level of their experience with the faith. And when push comes to shove, they've never really interacted with God. We could say in a spiritual sense, they've never seen the transformation of their soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were never renewed. They were never transformed into a new being. The old hasn't gone. The new has come. They've just simply said, I punched my ticket. I'm going to get to go to heaven. Sure, if this is the means of punching my free ticket to heaven, I'll say I accept Jesus as my Savior, and I'll check the card, and I'll even come forward and say what I need to say to get dunked at the church. But emotionally, they're completely disengaged from the will of the Father, which is that you and I would daily walk with Him and enjoy Him, that we would glorify Him by enjoying Him that we would love and, and love each other and, and, and experience the joy of what life is supposed to be, which is living and walking in the presence of Almighty God. So in this context, it makes sense. When the writer of Hebrews says, the people who are really believers, the people who will genuinely know when it's all said and done that they're going to be saved are the people that are engaged in relationship with God. So he would challenge us, persevere, persevere. You say, well, how, what? what? I don't understand. Well, this is what we're going to look at real quick. And, and I refer at, at some point to last week's message. If you haven't listened to it, you can get it online. We covered some territory where we made it very clear that real believers persevere in their faith, their dependence on what Christ has done for them, but they also continue in their pursuit of Christ's likeness. These are the characteristics of somebody who's a believer. They, they genuinely want to know and grow in Christ. Presuming that's the case, both thinking through and reflecting on Chris's experience in a hundred-hole hike and the text here in Hebrews 10, I have two thoughts for you about how we persevere. 
And the first would be this. We persevere for the causes we believe in. If you really believe in something, you will hang in there. Chris knew he had promised his friend on his deathbed. There's like little chance Kat's going to not follow through with this. I mean, there's, there's relationship with family and friends. There's so many connections there that of course Chris was going to do this. See, it's because he not only believed in what they were doing, he's a fine advocate for the college itself, but more so for what Galen's life represented. See, in, in this context, he's saying, I have relationship with the people. I, have, I, I understand my mission. I understand the person at the center of this, the people at the center of this. I understand the cause at the center of this. And because of that, I'm going to persevere. In our case, our cause is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus, his gospel. In verses 19 through 22, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right, quick uh, uh, hermeneutics, Bible, trend, Bible interpretation lesson for you if you've never heard this one. This is one of, the, one of your first basic things that you learn when you start studying the Scriptures carefully. And that is whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? All right, so... When you get to a place where the word therefore comes up in any passages of Scripture you're, you're studying, you need to go, okay, this is an important word because it's a transition word. I do this when I argue with my children. You know, I'll lay out the case, and I'll go, okay, because I've laid out the case, therefore, you will be home at 1 a.m. You know, there are a lot more drunk drivers on the road after midnight. You know, I don't trust your friends. You know, whatever I did, I laid out the case. And then I go, therefore, you're going to be home by one. That's the game. All right, so therefore is an important statement. To, for the writer of the book of Hebrews, he has spent the first ten and a half chapters making the case that Jesus is more than just another religious person, that Christianity is more than just another religious system competing for world market share. Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. He, the Father, and the Spirit are one being, and that Spirit lives in the life of a true believer. God, from all eternity, has decided to make His, his home in human hearts. And when we have a clear view of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, when we understand that Jesus is the Son of God, and when our lives in this world our salvation, the fullness of our lives are tied to him. When Jesus is providing our lives, we can't just walk away. You don't, if, if your life is consumed with your reflection on and your interaction with his spirit in your life, then at the moment when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you deny that or you don't get to be in our little club, you go, well, I Yes, as painful as it is for me to miss out on all the fun of your club, I'm going to have to go ahead and pass. You find out at the moment when your life is threatened what's really given you life. 
I'll give you an example of this uh, from the Scriptures. In John chapter 6, Jesus has this huge throng of people following him, thousands. And so Jesus decides in his infinite wisdom, time to thin the herd. And so <laughs> he opens up a can of doctrinal whoop butt, and, and the next thing you know, uh, people are leaving like by the droves. And so bad, I mean like house cleaning kind of time. It gets down to just the original 12 guys. So this must have been really one whopper of a sermon. I mean, he must have talked about money or something. You know what I'm saying? I mean, dude was on his game. And, and, and in particular, the reference in that context, he would talk about the, the, the need, the symbolic need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So he's freaking people out. It's like, what are you, a vampire? I mean, this, people are they're gone. So he looks at the original 12 disciples, and this is where we pick up in our passage in John chapter 6. After this, many of, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, don't you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. My college girlfriend and I were talking marriage. I was super duper in love. The relationship wasn't healthy, but I was pretty sure we were heading that direction. And then on a dime, she 180 and called me and said, I don't, I'm not in love with you anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to date you. And I got this on a phone call. That's a, that's a treat. Now that would be like, if you got texted, you broke up by text, you know, you're just supposed to do that kind of thing in person, just a freebie there for you. Nothing related to the sermon. All right. So my heart is just devastated, and I have graduated from college, but I'm back in my hometown of Tallahassee, Florida, and I'm all by myself living in my parents' house, and I think to myself, I am in this great party town, and it dawns on me, I could just go crazy for a little while. Why not just live life on the wild side? I've got no friends. I've got no girlfriend. I've got no prospects for jobs at the time, and I thought, this is an appropriate context to live life on the wild side. There was one thought, and I remember it very clearly, that kept me from doing that. And that was not only my, my ongoing need for God and Jesus to help me through that time, but I remember thinking, the resurrected Christ is really alive. For whatever reason, that was the beginning of a, a, an evolution in my spiritual life where I realized, this isn't a game. Jesus really is alive. And I can't just walk away. And if he wasn't real, then if this was just a moral code I was living by, then yeah, I would have done a little Chuck Gone Wild movie. And that would have been a lot of fun, as, as far as I thought. But I knew Jesus was alive. I knew I needed to trust him. I needed to walk through what was a really painful time by his grace and through his power and through his presence. That single thought tethered me, the resurrected Christ. And this is why in verse 35 of our passage today, the writer of Hebrews would say this, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You see, if you're genuinely connected to Jesus, I, I don't know what the difficulty is, friend. I, I've had a, a lot of dark rooms I've, I, I've wept in. I've had relationships fall apart. I've, had, I've lost jobs. I've been in financial crises. I've had children who walked away from the Lord. I've, I've had a lot of different things go on in my life. 
And I can say to you that while those things in and of themselves are painful, they have been the means by which I've gotten closer to God. And I've persevered through those difficult times and never said, I'm going to abandon my faith because I never thought that Jesus had promised me comfort. I'd never thought that Jesus had promised me that everything's just going to go your way. He wasn't a utility that I used to get what I really wanted. My Christian faith, by God's grace, I I came to a place where I understood this is about relationship with Jesus and I need him. We persevere when we have a clear perspective on who Jesus is, when he's real to you, when you recognize that there's no other way you're gonna, you can know that your sins are forgiven other than that Jesus took the blame for them. There's no other way that you're going to be able to be holy in God's presence, as the writer of Hebrews has talked about, unless Jesus' righteousness is credited to you and you stand in the presence of God and he looks at you and goes, wow, you're really holy because of Christ. When you know that the only way you actually achieve peace with God is through Christ, then when a group of people in your culture say, I find your belief system archaic and you ignorant and you don't get to be part of our social elite club anymore or you don't get the Hollywood role you were dreaming of or you don't get to be a part of this thing or this thing because you cling to this goofy Christianity thing about Jesus imposing his moral standards on you and Jesus coming in and telling you what you can do with your life and the idea that he would be the authority over you. Uh, Our culture is going to rebel against all of that, and increasingly so. You and I are going to be asked, do you really believe this stuff? And people who are interacting with Jesus, walking with Jesus, these people will persevere. And this is how, in the end, you can have comfort to know that you're a child of God, that you actually walked with him through the entirety of your life. We also persevere, though, according to the text today, not just for the causes we believe in, but by the relationships we count on. Verses 23 through 25 of Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may stir one, another, uh, stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see the two references to one another? Uh, the, the phrase one another is given in the New Testament 59 times. I've taken the time to print out those 59 references to one another, and I can email you this PDF. All you got to do is shoot me an email at chuck at prismchurch.com. I'd be more than happy to send this list along to you. The concept of living in community is intrinsic to the Christian faith. We persevere by the relationships that we're a part of in the body of Christ. And this text here twice says one another and once says that there is a habit that you can get into that has nothing to do with what you breathe into your lungs, what you snort up your nose, or what you pump into your liver. And it could be deadlier than all three of those combined. And it is the habit of avoiding developing relationships with other believers. It is the habit of being an isolated Christian. 
thinking to yourself, I'm afraid to be rejected by others, so I'm not going to let them in. If they find out who I really am, I will, I, I will feel bad about who I am, and I have to isolate myself. Perhaps for you, the reason you've avoided relationships with other believers, a commitment to being a part of a body of believers, is because of the sacrifice associated with it. It involves time. It involves your willingness to endure. Uh, if you've ever had relationships, some people's parents are this way. They, they don't suffer well with their kids. They, they don't endure. They don't like hearing about other people's problems. It's, it's too much of an emotional burden for them. It angers them. And so they don't want to be around people and have them whine about their problems. You understand that when you start saying, I'm going to be involved in relationships with people, there's a, there's a reason why you and I aren't more committed to that. And I want to say something very clear because I want you to hear me today. The degree to which a person gets the gospel is the degree to which they will feel both a compulsion to need others and to provide Christian fellowship for others. Let me unpack that a bit. When you understand your value to God, when you're feeding upon God and the gospel and his love for you and your relationship with Jesus is providing for you the assurance that you are valued and you are God's beloved child, you begin caring less what others think about you. And then you are free to serve without fear of being rejected. In a Christian community context, that means the closer you get to God, the more willing you are to let people know that you struggle and that you're weak and that you have broken areas in your life. Because the more confident you become that God loves you, that he's forgiven you, who cares what other people think? So when a person is maturing in Christ, it isn't that they're getting super spiritual and everybody admires them. It's they're getting super comfortable with their brokenness. You know you're hitting it out of the park from a gospel standpoint when you can sit in front of a group of people and say, yeah, I'm addicted. I have an addiction. Deal with it. I'm an alcoholic. Deal with it. Jesus loves me. I, I, I have a compulsion for this, that, or the other thing. I am struggling as a believer. I've struggled my whole life with this. And people look at you like, oh, boy. You've got problems. It's like, yeah, you do too. You just don't know yet. See, the person who's comfortable as a Christian says, you know what? I'm going to be who I am. And if you can't deal with it, too bad. See, this is the freedom of the gospel. And people who are free in Christ don't feel threatened to be around other believers. The flip side of this coin is this. When you're maturing as a believer, you realize it's not about just about you. It is about you to some degree, but it's not just about you. I mean, we're here to care for each other. I'm here to be a pastor to you, but I need you to love me too. It's not like I'm independent of need. I need encouragement. I need uh, people to tell me they love me too. All we, We're in community together. But ultimately... When Jesus says, follow me, take up your cross, he's saying that being a part of a community of believers, whether it's in a teeny church like this or a gargantuan one over at Lake Avenue, the bottom line is the Christian that is maturing recognizes that they need to serve others too. See, a, a growing believer gets the one another concept. 
the degree to which they get the gospel, they recognize a compulsion that they need other people. As you mature in Christ, you grow in your recognition of your own brokenness and your need for others. You don't get to a point in your Christian life where you're like, I can do this on my own now. Thank you very much. It's the exact opposite. It's counterintuitive. It's the beauty of what Jesus, the paradox of his teaching. The stronger you get as a Christian, the more you recognize your need for other people and that he was graciously sustaining you all this time along. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, another reference to the one another takes place in the Apostle Paul's teaching. He says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Dr. Kent Brantley arrived at Emory Hospital yesterday after being evacuated from Monrovia, Liberia, Liberia, where he is being treated for Ebola. Now, this is a Christian missionary doctor with Samaritan's Purse, and all three of the people that helped him had to wear protective gear. They had a special plane designed to contain the virus in this guy's system, the strain of the Ebola, the Ebola virus that he caught when he was in Liberia has a fatality rate of 60%, and past outbreaks had fatality rates as high as 90%. Brantley, along with missionary, uh, missionary Nancy Wrightbull, was infected with the disease after working with Ebola-infected patients in Liberia's capital city. Now, I read that the first time, and I thought to myself, who's crazy enough to work with Ebola-infected patients? Well, it makes perfect sense to me that these are Christian people. These are people that have said, God has called me to do this, and I'm going to do something that is risky and dangerous. This current Ebola outbreak is the worst on record and has killed more than 703 countries in West Africa and infected more than 1,300. Ironically, the doctor who went to help others is now in need. He's been flown back to the United States, and he's uh, in a hospital in Atlanta, which is actually the headquarters of the um, Center for Disease Control and and he seems to be doing well for a guy who has the Ebola virus. He actually walked off the plane on his own. But I thought about it. I thought, he's a doctor, and yet now he needs doctors. For him, he went to serve others, but now he's in a place where he needs to be served too. One of my mentors always said to me, the church Chuck is a hospital. It's full of patients and doctors and you never know when you're going to be one or the other. Sometimes you're the doctor. Sometimes you're there to help others heal. And sometimes you're the patient. But one thing is for certain, you can't be either if you're not there. You can't be either if you aren't going to submit to the teaching of Scripture that says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us pray. Father, for today we thank you. We thank you mostly because as we look at your word, we recognize that uh, we can't stand 
on our own and claim some type of great strength or great holiness or great willingness. We are uh, only able to speak with you, only able to interact with you because you have graciously forgiven us of our sins. But you have opened a way through the body of Jesus for us to not simply whimper into your throne room, but to boldly become before your throne. That's how holy Jesus is. And that's how holy clean we've been made by his blood. So I pray that today during our time of response and to your word, Father, as we come to the communion table, that we would come boldly to you expressing our needs. Give your children grace today and joy in your presence. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name.